Welcome to the latest edition of the Carmichael Governance Podcast. I'm Dermot O'Carbui, CEO of Carmichael. Carmichael is a charity that provides supports to other Irish charities, particularly in the area of governance. You can find details of what we do and a wide range of free resources on our website. That's carmichaelireland.ie. You can also find previous editions of our governance podcast on our website or on your favourite podcast platform, be that SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Acast. My guest today is Aideen Morkin, who's a partner in Mazars, very involved in the whole area of annual reports and auditing. Aideen, you might just give us a bit of background to your journey to date, how you've ended up in the role that you're currently filling, or the roles, I'm sure there are more than one role that you're filling at the moment. Thanks, Dermot, and, and thank you for inviting me. Um, yes, yeah, so I joined Mazars in back at the, the end of the last century, in 1999, as an audit trainee. Mazars at the time, or Chapman Flood, Mazars as it was at the time, was it's, it was quite a small firm. It was about 100 staff members, uh, so significantly smaller than it is today. So as a consequence of the size, I would have trained very much as a generalist, so across lots of different industries, lots of different types of work. And around the time I qualified as a chartered accountant in 2002, uh, we were just starting up a financial services practice at the time. Uh, we, we'd done a lot of financial services historically as part of Mazar's group internationally. So I, I ended up specialising in that area for about 10 years. And I think I enjoyed you know, the challenge of it, the complexity of it, and, and the fact that it was something very new, I suppose. It, during that time, I progressed from audit senior to assistant manager manager and director and then around 2014 I was coming back from a second maternity leave and I was probably at the point where the kind of the allure of financial services and and the challenge of it had worn off a little bit and I was probably also at a little bit of a plateau in terms of my career and and just around that time as I was coming back to work Mazars was invited to do a piece of work for one of the very large international aid organizations and I was asked to do it at that time, charity regulation was just coming in in 2014. It was just after some of those very big charity scandals that hit in 2013. And, and there were some very significant challenges and it was a period of real change, I think, for the sector. So I think I was just particularly fortunate to have kind of delved into this job at, at that particular time. And I, and I saw like a really great opportunity for both Mazars and for myself in the sector at that point in time. You know, having had that background in a very highly regulated environment of financial services, and I kind of went about applying myself to to developing a very tailored approach to our charity clients and to growing a team of charity specialists in Mazars who would support our clients and the sector, you know, rather than just giving them a standard audit service or a tax service or whatever, that would be something a little bit more tailored and a little bit more specialist. And it would, you know, move with the growth in regulation, the growth in compliance requirements and, and the very challenging environment that was emerging at that time. We crossed paths. I went knocking on your doors and I, I had this idea for the Good Governance Awards. And um, from day one, you've been very, very, very supportive of that. And, the, and, and, and as chair of the judges panel, uh, and the whole driving thing around the Governance Award was to improve governance standards in, in the sector. And one particular area we wanted to look at and improve was the annual report, mm-hmm. which was sort of the forgotten child in many ways in terms of the whole area of yeah. compliance, but is a critical component mm-hmm. of demonstrating accountability, transparency, but also adherence to good governance. You, you've been around the annual report, you've seen the good, bad and the ugly. Mm-hmm. From your perspective, what makes a good annual report? Yeah, I think there's probably a number of things that make make a good annual report. For me, I suppose, coming from an accounting background, a good annual report, it has to be grounded in compliance. So whatever the framework you apply is, and Charity SORP is not yet mandatory here, not everybody applies it, but that's maybe another another question, another to- topic for another day. But whatever, whether it's SORP you apply, whether it's FRS 102, if you're a company limited by guarantee, 
um, and you know companies that applies it's really absolutely fundamental that that's your your your, your kind of your bedrock and particularly with charity store I would say you need to treat it as it's not a tick box exercise you need to really embrace the spirit of it and every year I'm, I'm dismayed probably and disappointed in terms of the level of non-compliance whether it's with charity store with FRS 102 or companies act 14 and I think you really need to get that right from the start uh, other aspects I suppose I'd mention in terms of what makes a good annual report you know to me annual reports are all about stories and you really need to tell it like a story you know you need to talk about the organization what it does the people in the in the very widest sense and uh, and above all I suppose the difference that your organization is making you need though as a story to make it very interesting you need to make it appealing and I think blocks of text on a page make it a little bit difficult to read you need to make it visually engaging and not so text heavy you know, I suppose if I'm an accountant and I, you know, eat, breathe, sleep annual reports and I'm kind of struggling after the first couple of pages, you know, it's not really boding very well for, for your wider oh, stakeholder group. Sometimes people just will just throw everything at the report. Yeah. Sometimes it will, it will tell them everything. Mm. What sort of things help to sort of engage the reader of the report yeah. um, in terms of the layout? Yeah. They're breaking it up from just, it's not a whole series table tables of figures or big blocks of text what sort yeah. of things could I help it's just to, to mix it up a little bit so if, if you're thinking about sort of the front end of the annual report and your your director's report your ceo statement um chairperson statement maybe a little bit of use of infographics graphics pictures even you know simple things like just a bit of color can make a huge amount of difference and if something is in a table you know color code the different columns in it or the rows or whatever. just very very simple things you know I, I would find you know when I talk about sort of visuals uh, clients will say to me but you're like we can't afford a graphic designer to and I completely understand that and I, I don't believe charities should be spending extortionate amounts on on their annual reports but you know very simple things can make a huge difference and what I I suppose I read an awful lot of annual reports so I see a lot and what I always encourage my clients to do is have a look back. The ones who won awards or the ones who are particularly similar to you in terms of what you do and the nature of your organisation and borrow ideas. There's, you know, there's nothing to stop you doing that, yeah. Telling the story is one thing. And I'm in the middle of doing a whole series of sessions at the moment with, with groups around the country. Mm. And, and there's this, almost a bit of shock. They said, what, you mean we're, we have licence to tell our story? And I said, well, that's what your annual report should be, mm. telling your story. But they say, well... We have difficulty sometimes our auditors come in with their package and they won't they only allow us a little paragraph what would you say to those organizations you know in terms of getting control back taking back yeah. control to use a phrase from um, another another jurisdiction but you know there's probably a couple of elements to that in that a lot of organizations maybe traditionally they kept their financial statements separate from their annual report and, and kind of over the last couple of years we've probably seen a movement where, where organizations are bringing the two together a little bit more which i think makes makes a lot of sense i think at the end of the day it's your document, it's your organisation. And if, if, if your auditor and your accountant can't see that and they're not in agreement, I think you need a new auditor to be quite frank about it. You know, I do separate exercises with, with, with organisations where they just specifically want help with their annual report. They don't actually really necessarily look for a new auditor. But I always say to them, the director's report, the front end, I'll give you advice, I'll tell you what best practice is. It is your document, and you need to tell the story. That that's I I, I do the numbers bit. That's not my that's, job. That's yeah. The words in itself. It's the director's report yeah. or it's the trustees' report, and it has to be the trustees' yeah. report. It's not the the, the the auditor has a job to confirm and validate yeah. figures that are in contained and has a role to do. But mm-hmm. the job of the trustees and the directors is to account 
for the year and for your organisation and use the resources. So I would push back very strongly to, if, if you're hearing that from your, your accountants and, and they say maybe time for a time for a, a time for a change. You, you mentioned and, and um, you see an awful lot of annual reports. So you see good ones. What would you see as common mistakes that you would come across? Or some things I said, oh, you know, that if they only thought about this, it would have a, had a huge impact in terms yeah. of the quality of the narrative that they're trying to get across. Um, I think probably one of the, 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 the biggest things I see, or maybe one of the first mistakes that organisations make, is that they don't really plan for the annual report. They kind of, a little bit like what you say, is they kind of leave it a little bit to the auditors or the accountants, and they're not really thinking ahead in terms of the annual report. You know, you really need to think about and, and plan for how you're going to approach it. You know, identify very early on, and like I'm talking pre-year end here, what inputs you need for the annual report, who you need them from, what are the timelines and the deliverables. I think, you know, you need somebody who's going to take control of it and be the project leader and, and somebody who's going to be the editor. You know, I think everybody starts out with great ideas, or a lot of people at least, they want to win awards and they want to be up for good governance awards and they want to be up for the published accounts awards. But I think if you fail to put those basic preparatory steps in place, it's, it's a bit like stumbling at the starting blocks of a race almost. And I, the other thing I see quite often is that even those who do have great plans, they underestimate how much is involved or they underestimate the difficulty with getting what they need at the time they need it. Quite often as well, I think organisations don't allow for the fact that they're, you know, they're getting something from the finance team, they're getting something from the operational side, they're getting something from the CEO and the chair, and you bring them all together, but they don't necessarily all fit together and it can end up very disjointed. So the term one editorial voice, and I think that you know, is missing in an awful lot of annual reports. That it's, it's a little bit more like a cut and paste job from absolutely, different parts yeah, of the organization. Yeah. And that, you know, coming back to that story point. It can't read like a story if it's completely disjointed and it's all these this kind of hodgepodge almost of, di- of different elements. So I think that's really, really important is to, to get those pieces early and then you, you have the, the opportunity to step back and take an overview and kind of go, actually, does this all fit together or do we need to tweak things here and there? So that's one big piece, I suppose, all around the, the planning. Like another fairly common weakness is in terms of the language. So you see an awful lot of boilerplate language, language being taken from pro forma sets of financial statements. So, you know, the, the Institute of Chartered Accountants, for example, will provide pro forma sets of accounts for more for FRS 1 or 2 and Companies Act 14. But you see that that kind of pro forma language being copied and that doesn't really add any meaning. So if I have like a pro forma accounting policy for income, it doesn't bear any resemblance to what income I receive and how I account for it and how I treat it. So that so that's a, a very common thing. And, and also, I mean, my, my own personal bugbear on, on language is you see a lot of copying and pasting. So, you know, I, I did say already, you know, look at other annual reports and borrow things from them. Do not borrow the language that doesn't pertain to your organisation because shocking as it may sound, it does happen quite regularly. Um, you're suddenly reading about a totally different organisation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, which is worrying. Um, the other area is probably that I think, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of easy wins, as in there are weaknesses I see a lot of, and they're not actually that difficult to fix. Things like the reserves. So most organisations have a reserves policy, and it's probably a reasonably sensible reserves policy. And they'll talk about the policy in, in the director's report, but they don't actually explain, well, where are we at versus the policy? And okay, you can see that maybe from, if you once you flick to the balance sheet. Divorce from the, the uh, actual figures in, in the financial statements. Yeah, absolutely. And then not many organisations hit bang on what their policy target is. So you're either under or you're over, and they don't explain, well, if you're under, how are you going to get, up, get it up to your target reserves level? And what's the timeline for that? Or if they're over their target, well, how are they going to utilise those reserves? And again, what's the timeline? So that's that's a kind of 
an easy win because I think most boards are talking about it. It's just not finding its way into the annual report. I suppose with a finance background, I find financial reviews generally to be quite weak. They very often just repeat what's in the financial statements and which I can, what I can see there already. They don't really explain what are the drivers of the result, what has driven the, the financial position at the year end. You know, it really needs to give some kind of insight to the reader. So um, just on that, mm. they may just say, well, our income for the year was 200,000 and they yeah. don't sort of and yeah. compare it to previous years or yeah. what, what what were the drivers in, yeah. in 2019 yeah, exactly. for that, that figure or how yeah. that came about. Yeah, yeah. And if there are particular, you know, ups or downs in that year, to, to try and give a sense, I suppose, of is that expected to continue? Is it a once-off? Just that little bit of insight. And I suppose trying to, to put a little bit in management, senior management, you know, if there's an audit committee, finance committee, uh, the board, they're discussing the numbers. They're, they're, they have their own internal, probably KPIs or, or things they're targeting. That just doesn't find its way in. And, you know, we don't need a full set of management accounts and, and the explanations that go with that. But you just need to get that greater insight piece, I think. So, yeah, that's the financial review. And the other one other area I've mentioned just in terms of weaknesses is, is future plans that I think maybe coming a little bit from the accounting standards, the future plans, but it tends to be aligned, a couple of lines, very, very brief. You know, accounts are historically focused. They're, they're focusing on past performance, but you really need to, to bring it into the future as well and kind of set out, well, where are we going and how are we going to achieve this? And that's a really important part. Because as I said, I was doing, doing these sessions and the question was put to me, well, usually because it's, it's a long process, we're not finishing our annual report till sometime around May, June. Yeah. So the future plans, is it for 2020 or is it from the, the point in time we were writing the report? Or is, is, what, what, what time frame should we yes, have in mind? Yes, I see that is, I see it as kind of multi-period. So you kind of, you deal with 2020, um, you know, you probably talk a little bit about between the end of the year and when you're signing it, fill in the gap there then you talk about the rest of 2020 but you also need to talk it needs to be longer term than just to the end of 2020 you know I think people get a little bit caught up or confused with the kind of going concern concept and that that applies to a 12-month period from the data signing that's not so much relevant I think it's more strategically where are you going um over the next three five years and you might tie that in maybe with you know, how's, how long is left on your strategic planning period. We mentioned that, you, that you're a judge both in the Good Governance Awards and the Public Accounts Awards. From your perspective, what makes the winner stand out? What points of difference have you spotted in, in the very good reports as opposed to the ones that are sound but not quite sort of there to be picked as a winner? I think one of the big differences for me, and, and there's not many organisations doing this, it's where the, all organisations, they'll describe their achievements at great length and, and they'll talk about the number of service users in a particular facility or uh, maybe the number of courses developed, you know, depending on, on their area. But it can tend to be just numbers and it's it, there's no context applied around it. So I don't know necessarily, well, what did they set out to achieve or what was their capacity in terms of what could they have achieved? So it's, it's that context piece and putting that around what you're, you're reporting in terms of achievements, I think is really important. And, and also, I think linking sort of strategic objectives, achievements, and I just mentioned, you know, the future plans, linking those three elements together and putting the context around it, I think is a real standout for me. Another area, I think, in terms of winning annual reports, the whole area of risk, risk management, getting a sense of, oh, what's the 
the risk culture in the organization and really is risk at the forefront of everything that the board does how living breathing is it in the organization and again i think this maybe comes back to to accounting standards and there's a requirement you know to to disclose your your principal risks and uncertainties and and people kind of tend to stick maybe with that safe ground rather than doing the, the 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 more cultural kind of piece of it i think and i think probably as well some organizations they don't maybe go into enough detail in terms of where they do describe the risks well what are the mitigating controls or or how are they doing their utmost i suppose to make sure that the risks don't realize insofar as they're they're controllable so there that kind of the context piece and the risks piece is really big and i suppose the other thing i'd mention is you know i talked about risk and risk culture governance wise you know, lots of organisations are talking about all the things you'd expect to talk, them to talk about in terms of governance, but they're not necessarily giving you an insight into how it actually works in practice. It feels like a little bit of a tick box. Well, we need to talk about X, Y, Z, but we don't necessarily show well, what initiatives have we taken on board this year outside of the kind of the day-to-day governance aspects that you'd expect to see. Probably as we're recording this, a lot of organisations are in full flow of writing yeah. the, the, their report. Mm-hmm. So if you said, is there anything that you'd say this year, for when you're writing your 2019, mm. that they should think about doing that would that would improve their 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 the process or even their the, the end product. Yeah, um, I suppose at the very start, and maybe it's a little bit late to be saying at the very start, but what I would say is, you know, really do try to take that step back and put yourself in the shoes of the reader before you ever put pen to paper or, or start on the keyboard or whatever. You need to think about, well, what does the reader want to see in my annual report? What, what, who are my stakeholders and what are they looking for in my annual report? And, you know, a lot of charitable organisations, they're very wide stakeholder groups, so it can be difficult, it can be a challenge to meet the requirements and the needs of all those stakeholder groups, but you really need to be figuring out, well, well what are they looking for and what's meaningful to them? So that's one really important thing. I've mentioned the one editorial voice. I think that's really, really important. I've talked a little bit about context in terms of putting your your achievements and performance in, in the context of targets. Another really important thing for me is telling the bad as well as the good is, is how I put it. A lot of organizations, they feel they have to put this really positive spin and they have to show how much they're doing and how much they're achieving and isn't it all great? And actually the reality is that it's not all great for charities. We all know that. They, they have so many struggles and so many challenges. Funding is so tight. Uh, they're under so much of a burden in terms of compliance and there's so many different ranges of compliance and, and that's all very difficult. So I think you need to be careful. I mean, you don't want to be doomsday. This is dreadful and, and super negative but you, you really need to be making sure that it's balanced and you're talking about what didn't go so well what, what were the real real challenges and you know I think a lot of organizations they shy away from maybe talking about things like fraud or you know negative things that happen in the organization but I think you have to be as open as you possibly can because you know then in that way the reader is getting a real sense of what is this organization about and you know they really feel that, that the organization has been absolutely open and transparent and I think that can only be a win-win for the organization. Just going back to your thing about the reader and uh, this is a question that's come up quite a bit in, in the sessions I'm having and I, I've been trying to say to them there are a number of readers that are coming from a different perspective. I said, first and foremost, you need to be writing the report for your community, the community that you operate, those that you're serving, your volunteers, your staff, those who support the organisation. They're, they're a principal one, so what do you need to tell them as a, as, as a constituent? But there are also other readers, 
and those would be your regulator. And if you're a charity, the regulator wants to know what are you doing in terms of advancing your charitable purpose? How are you governed in relation to that? So that's an important other message. And the third important audience is your funders. The funder, it says, we've given a, a, an act of faith by giving you money to do something. We need to see that, how that money was used and uh, deployed. And so those are three principal audiences that mm. you need to think when you're writing the report. Yeah. And you can do all, you can cover all three yeah. bases, but it's mm. just thinking that you do have three, at least minimum of three yeah. and to think about what would they need to know from yeah. this? What do I need to tell them? If I'm having done a conversation with yeah. them, what do I need to reflect in their annual report? So, you know, and, and, and as we said at the start, it's telling your story and you're telling the story of the organisation, mm -hmm. but also particularly the story of what happened in the previous reporting period. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I'd mention, just as you, as you say that, Dermot, is, you know, you're saying kind of one of the groups is funders. And what I see a lot with clients is actually that funder group is the profile of it is changing quite a bit. And what the HSC or some of the government funders might want and what corporates, which a lot of, org of charitable organisations are focusing on now are quite different possibly and, and so that even within itself is, yeah, is a kind of a, yeah, yeah. Uh, a you know uh, something that needs a little bit of thought and, and, and focus. This is a question I've asked, I asked all my guests and I said if you had three wishes for the sector the outside the charity sector in Ireland what would it be over the next five years what would you like to see yeah. happening in the charity sector? Um, well, I suppose at the start you know I talked about how I got into this sector and, and you know it was when regulation was just starting uh, so I've seen kind of since the regulator came in right up until today and I think the pace of change has been slow in terms of the embedding of regulation in organisations and you know I'm not sure that we're at a point where there's a real sector-wide embracing of, of both regulation and compliance so you know I, I, I'd really like to see organisations kind of getting a little bit more bought into that you know and even if I you know to use a couple of examples you know the governance code obviously came out towards the end of 2018 this is the first effective year that's reporting next year even still, you know, I go out to clients and they're kind of going, yeah, we're about to start self-assessing on compliance. You know, it's, it's, it's just taking too long, you know, and people are kind of going, well, I'll do it when I have to do it, but they're not really early engaging. And, you know, similarly, there's all the CRA guidelines, whether it's on fundraising, internal financial controls, uh, they've just released one on safeguarding. I think these are such a valuable resource and, you know, I don't think they're being availed of to the extent that they should be. And I think, you know, organisations are missing an opportunity there, really. So that's one, the, the kind of the regulation and the compliance piece. I think secondly, I'd like to see, aside from the, the, the embedding of regulation and compliance, a bit of a streamlining of their, the compliance requirements. You know, I think organisations are overburdened. We talked about the funders and the different funder types and so on, and they all have different requirements and none of them are the exact same as the other. So I think organisations are spending an awful lot of time ticking the boxes with all these compliance requirements that if they could be streamlined somewhat, just that resource could be used more effectively elsewhere in the organisation. And then finally, I think I'd really like to see the government and public bodies give greater recognition to the work of charities and to the, to the very invaluable contribution that they make to society. I hear so many of my clients talk about the CEO, members of the board, very senior members of management engaged and spending so much time in negotiations with the public funders, with the HSE and it's it's just a massively time-consuming exercise and again it's just taking them away from from the day job so I, you know I think if that funding piece could be leveled out I, I think that would make a huge difference to the sector. I fully concur with those those I think if we had those in place we would have a, a much stronger sector. Aileen has been wonderful speaking to you and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much George. Thank you for listening to our latest Carmichael Governance podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did 
it would be of great benefit to us if you could give it a rating, as that helps to create greater awareness of these podcasts. So until the next time, Slán Gofól.